seated. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we uh, come before you and we do celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, as we go into a time of studying your word, Lord, we pray that these classic, true historical Bible stories would come alive in our hearts, that we would be reminded that you led us who believe to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, that this time you would receive honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning once again. I, I do want to um, just reiterate an announcement, uh, especially on the women in community, holy sexuality. I think we'll say more in the weeks to come, but um, as Gabe mentioned and alluded to, the world is talking about sexuality. The world is talking about everything there is to talk about in sexuality. And I think it's wonderful that the church has an intergenerational platform for women of all ages in the English congregation and in the our Cantonese and Mandarin, if they're welcome to come, it'll be in English, but to connect and to talk about these same subjects from a biblical perspective. So come out to that and, uh, and, and you will be blessed. All right, well, there's a famous slogan uh, that reads, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. You'll see this on coffee mugs. You'll see this on t-shirts on posters, and it's a play on words. It's a play on the understanding of the story of the wise men seeking out Christ. And so I've entitled our message today, Wise Men Still Seek Him in Quotes, okay? And what we see in our passage today is that there are two responses to the newborn king. First, there's the response of the wise men, and they will seek to worship Christ. Second, there is the response of Herod, which we'll see uh, later on. And there's a positive response, that of the wise men. There's a negative response, that of Herod. And these are different responses. Meet me now in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's a familiar passage for many of you who have been exposed uh, to the church for those of you who are new to Christianity. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. Allow me to read this into your hearing, and before I do that, let me remind you uh, that these wise men are not the shepherds. They're not the shepherds of Luke 2. Often there's some confusion of the narrative, these shepherds in Luke chapter 2 are a different, or is describing a different group and a different event from that in Matthew chapter 2. With that in mind, let's, let me read this into your hearing, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, keywords after Jesus was born, we don't know how long after Jesus was born. After Jesus was born, in the days of King Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, literally agitated, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, 
Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw that the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, not Mary. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now the first point we see from our passage this morning is the wise men seek to worship Christ. The wise men seek to worship Christ. They sought to find Jesus. They rejoiced at the news of a newborn messianic king of Israel, and they sought to worship him. Now, what we read in verse 1 gives us an idea of the setting, now after Jesus was born. So, Sometimes people will read this and say, well, it seems like they're entering a house. I thought Jesus was born in a manger. Well, yeah, he was placed in a manger, but this is some time after Jesus was born. We don't know if this was the next day. We don't know if this was two months, three months, but you have to understand that Joseph and Mary decided to settle where they were in Bethlehem, and, and there was Jesus sometime after he was born. God sent sent this star to guide these wise men on a search for Jesus. Now, who were these wise men? Who were they? Now, verse 1 tells us that these wise men came from the east. They came, from, they came to Jerusalem, and they came looking for the king of the Jews. And some of your translations will say magi. And the reason why your translations render the word magi is because the Greek word used is magoi. Right, so that's the Magi. And the Magi were a priestly uh, tribe of religious leaders. Uh, they were not Jewish. Most scholars believe that the Magi were of Persian descent, at least the ones in this passage. They studied the stars. They were known as wisdom teachers, and they were known to interpret dreams. These particular Magi served as royal advisors to the Babylonian and Medo-Persian kings for centuries. Now, let me ask you a question, just a trick question, if you will. How many wise men were there? We three kings of Orient are, well, they aren't kings. They're magi. How many wise men? More than three. Now, folklore and that song got us thinking that there's only three wise men. The text, if you look carefully, says there's three types of gifts that they bring. But nowhere in this passage 
And this is the only passage that highlights this account on the wise men. Nowhere does it say there's only three wise men. Now, here's some insight. One or several prominent Bible teachers, if you listen to their sermons, they will point out that three wise men alone might not have troubled Herod. What would cause Herod to be agitated, to be troubled? It could be many wise men coming to him and saying, we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Newborn king of the Jews. So just consider that, that we don't know exactly how many wise men there were, but it was enough to, t- to trouble Herod. Now, how did these wise men from the east, from Persian descent, how did they hear of the Jewish Messiah? Now, that answer, that answer is in Daniel chapter 5. I don't have it for you on the screen. I'll just summarize it. But in the book of Daniel, we see the Magi giving counsel to the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar and his son. And later, the Magi are recorded as giving counsel to Cyrus, the Persian king. Now, these wise men could not interpret the visions and the dreams correctly. That's what we gather from Daniel. In Daniel chapter 5, specifically verses 11 and 12, it tells us that God empowered Daniel with the ability to interpret the dreams and the visions of the kings. And so as a result, the king, first Nebuchadnezzar, then Cyrus, elevated Daniel to a place where he became chief over all the magi in the land. And we know Daniel, he was bold. There is no doubt that Daniel would have proclaimed to the Magi, it is Yahweh, the one true God, the monotheistic God of the Old Testament. It is Yahweh that reveals these dreams to me. And we don't doubt for a moment that Daniel would have proclaimed the prophecies of the coming Messiah. That's one angle. Secondly, second contextual angle is that After Cyrus allowed for the Jews to return to their homeland, many of the Jews chose to remain in Babylon. And we're not saying by any means that all of these Jews were faithful and devout, pious worshipers of Yahweh. But if they're going to stay in Babylon for centuries, what happens is a syncretism. There's a mixing of Babylonian or Persian culture or later Greek culture with that of Jewish culture. So when you combine the two, Daniel's influence over the Magi, the Magi continuing to serve as royal advisors in the royal courts for centuries, and the syncretism of Judaism and Babylonian or Persian culture, that's when you can gather that you have these foreign Gentile kingmakers, royal advisors to the kings who somehow have a syncretism a, a syncretism of the Jewish prophecies and an understanding of the Jewish Messiah. So that's the best explanation of how these Gentiles heard about the Jewish Messiah. Now, these Magi, keep in mind that they don't know exactly where to go. They don't know exactly the, prophet, the words of the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. They don't know. So they don't know to go directly to Bethlehem. Instead, they go to Jerusalem because they know enough. They they know enough that this Messiah, probably through the words of Daniel, would be the greater son of David. 
And so they're thinking, what is the city of David? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Right? And what else? Where are kings typically found? The capital. So if I want to find the newborn king of the Jews, I'll probably go to the capital. And that's where they go and they find that there's an existing token king of the Jews, King Herod. Right? So they don't know where to go, but they know enough to deduce to, that they should be headed towards the official city of David. Now, they saw this star, verse 2 says. Now, what is this star? What was this star that they saw? There's so much published on trying to deduce what this star is that we're really not going to spend too much time because it's all rubbish. Okay? Uh, some believe that this star was just Jupiter, that it wasn't a supernatural act of God, that, that they happened to see Jupiter. Others, and still today, there's people who argue vehemently that it was just a comet, that it happened to be a comet. Others say that it's a low-hanging meteor. Now, we don't know for certain, but there's one thing that we do know, is that if you look down at verse 9, what does the text actually say? Now, it describes the star, and first we saw in verse 2 that it says it's his star, right? When, when they saw a star... It rose, and we've come to worship him. So one, it's the star that points them to Christ. It's the star of Christ. But in verse 9, notice how it describes the star. It says that the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them. So it went in front of them. It's guiding them, just like your GPS. It's guiding them until it came to rest over the place where the star, where the child was. So imagine that. There's a star that... You don't see, all of a sudden you see it, it moves and then it stops and it stays there for some time over the house where Jesus resided. I don't think that's a natural phenomenon. That's a supernatural divine act of God for the purpose of leading these wise men to Jesus, to fulfill prophecy. This is God employing his own creation of the stars and say, hey, this star, whatever that might be, you're working for me today, and I'm going to send you directly, and you're going to guide these wise men, and they're going to know exactly where to go, right? And so the Lord allowed, allowed this supernatural act as his purpose of fulfilling some of the prophecies of bringing Gentiles to bow before the Jewish king. Now, how did, they, how did the, the, the wise men respond? Well, we already, we already mentioned that they responded with worship. You notice in verses 10 to 12, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That seems repetitive. But I want you to just look at verse 10 once again and notice it says they rejoiced. Okay, you've already told us that they rejoiced exceedingly. Okay, so they're rejoicing a lot with great joy. Stop repeating yourself. You know, I think you've made the point. But I think it's, that's the main point that it's making. When they saw this star, that they were searching for Jesus. They, these are Gentiles. They don't even know where to go. Okay, they have to, they have to go ask Herod. And then they have this star guide. And when they finally find Christ, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Talk about emphasizing their joy. Why do, I, why do I emphasize this? This is in contrast to what I'll show you in point number two. The anger, the agitation, or the indifference of the, of the Jewish leaders. Now look at verse 11. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and as I mentioned, they fell down and worshipped 
him. Stop there. When, when we celebrate the birth of a child, we bring gifts, but what do we do, especially in our culture? Congratulations. To who? The parents. You must be proud parents. Congratulations. Right? You praise the parents. And Joseph and Mary should be honored, but not venerated, not worshipped, not prayed to and through. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. There's no, there's no praying through Mary or to Mary here. These wise men, Gentiles, Gentiles, they go directly, they see the parents, they bow down to the baby. Somehow the Lord has revealed to them that this child is the only one in this context that is to receive worship. They fell down and worshiped him because they saw his star. Then opening their treasures, they offered him how many of how many ever of them there are, offered him gifts, uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, gold is a precious metal. Now, we know today that there's platinum and, and there's other more precious metals, but back in, for, for centuries, it was gold as the most precious metal. There's frankincense, which was an expensive incense, and then there's myrrh, which is a costly perfume. And all scholars agree that most likely when Joseph and Mary had to take Jesus to flee from Herod into Egypt. How would they survive? Well, these expensive gifts served as, as ways that they probably sold it. They probably got value back from it, and it provided for their, for their own uh, well-being. It was weird. Uh, maybe, maybe my uh, Facebook uh, feed knew that I was preaching this. I don't know how, but last night I just pulled on to see if I had any messages, and I saw this weird uh, meme that came up where there's one wise man that got turned away because he was carrying, uh, he was carrying fruitcake. <laughs> I was like, I was like anyways, I, I said, oh, maybe God wants me to share that corny joke tomorrow. But yeah, so it has the three wise men with their three gifts. You know it's more than three, but there was a fourth one even in that. And he was turned away because he was carrying fruitcake. I was telling Gabe, I said, hey, you're going to show that Lottie Moon uh, video Gabe's out there so he, so he doesn't have to roll his eyes. And I said, what is the favorite Christmas drink of Southern Baptist? Latte Moon. <laughs> I said, you got it. This is the last week showing it, so you got it. You got it. Latte Moon. So everybody just remember that. Latte Moon. Get your Latte Moon on. All right? But you could assume that these, these gifts would provide for the needs of their family. And so there's a very purpose. There's a purpose. You, you can see God's hand every step of the way. Every step of the way you can see God's hand. That even these practical gifts would be used practically for Jesus' family to survive when they were in exile in Egypt. And we'll look at that passage next week. But we'll come back to verse 12. But if you look at verse 12, which is on the screen behind me, you'll notice that while everybody else might be afraid of Herod, these wise men are not. Now, we don't know if these wise men are genuine believers, but their response is the right response. They worship Christ, the king, and they don't listen to Herod. They're not afraid of Herod. They're, they're, they're filled with joy because of this newborn king, Gentiles like you and me. Gentiles who, who aren't Jewish by ethnicity, who may not know of the Jewish prophecies. But we know enough about Christmas and some baby Jesus, if you're not in church, if you're not a Christian, you know enough about the stories that if there's some type of special revelation, it can actually lead you to worship. 
Once again, I don't know if these were genuine believers, but the key in verse 12 is they not only did they worship Christ, they did not listen to Herod. They were guided by God because in a dream, God tells them, do not return to Herod, and they departed back to their own country another way. There are some preachers, expository preachers, who make the application point that they read this and say, by another way, it says anybody who truly encounters Christ and worships him will walk another way, will leave another way. Now, I don't know if there's exegetical warrant for that, but when I heard that on the, on, you know, through good preaching, I said, hey, there's a point there, that if you and I truly are introduced to the real newborn king, if you truly worship him, not only will you have joy, but you will walk away another way. You will walk your path, another path in life. You'll turn away and turn and you'll repent. But this leads us to point number two, they did not listen to the foolish king. Point number two, play on words, the wise men seek to worship Christ. The foolish king seeks to eliminate Christ. So this is the opposite. There is an in-between, which is indifference, but I wanted to highlight Herod's insecurity, his heart, his character. The foolish king seeks to eliminate Christ. Now, Herod seems really far from you and me. You know, when I think of Herod, I think, oh, well, there was not a time in my life, even before I fully believed in Christ, that I wanted to eliminate the idea of baby Jesus. I don't want to kill babies, and I don't want to kill Jesus. So, you know, me and Herod, we're in different boats. We're cut from a different cloth, you know. Uh, but I want you to think before we go into the text, it says, Herod sought to eliminate him, but I want to ask you this question that I have to ask myself. Do we seek to eliminate Christ from certain areas of our lives, even us as believers are tempted to do so? Are there areas of our lives where we say, okay, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and you rose again, and I believe the Sunday mornings belong to you, uh, but when it comes to my money, I'm the king of my money. Do not invade my territory. I'm not the king of the Jews. I'm the king of my money. Some of you might say, I'm the king of my relationships. You can touch everything else, but you can't touch my relationships. I'm the king of my job. I'm the king of... My career, I'm the king of the golf course, whatever it is for you, right? See, sometimes when we, when we feel threatened because we feel like God sent his son to conquer us as if we're going to lose our freedom. I'll come back to this in the application. But God, Jesus does come as a conqueror, but Herod got it wrong. Jesus is going to come as a conqueror in his second coming, but in his first coming, he comes to reign, not over the earthly Jewish throne. He came to reign over our hearts. And when he invades, he is a good king. He wants to do something else in your heart. He wants to rescue you from the things that you've subjected yourself to. So we'll see this, but, but first let's look at Herod. Who is Herod, this insecure king? Well, Herod here is referring to Herod the Great, but he's not so great. Now, Herod the Great was not a true Jewish king. Some scholars say that he was half Jewish. I doubt it. 
Other scholars say that he wasn't Jewish at all, and that's where I think there's more favorable scholarship. Regardless of his ethnic roots, history records that he was appointed ruler over Israel by the Romans. Funny that he's appointed the title king of the Jews, and now these wise men come and say, hey, Herod, we heard that there's a newborn king of the Jews. Insecurity. Just imagine yourself being Herod. I don't know how big he is, but he's a little man inside. A little, little, little man inside. Just think of how insecure he is. He's not Jewish. The people that he's given token ownership over or governance over, they hate him. They're like, you're not even one of us. And the Romans who oppress us put you over us. So he's afraid. He owes it to Caesar. He owes it to Caesar, so he's afraid. He wants to maintain peace. He's just a token. He knows people don't respect him. He doesn't know the Bible. That's why when the wise men come and talk about the newborn king, he doesn't have any idea. He has to get the, the Jewish leaders to come and tell him, to tell him about Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So now when you have these wise men, and again, I think there's more than three, when they're lining up to tell him, hey, we're all here. We're all here to look for the newborn king of the Jews. Where is he? He feels insecure. He feels threatened. He feels like someone is going to invade his territory, and he's so small. Maybe you can feel some compassion for him, but he's so small. If anything, he's over, he's filled with paranoia. Now, notice verse 3. I'll put it up for you. In verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he didn't receive it as good news. It says he was troubled. The literal translation of the Greek could be translated as agitated and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I used to have one of those older uh, washing machines where they had that center thing that shakes. It's like a, a tube. They call it a what? Agitator. It's meant to shake. And so the idea of him being troubled is that he's so angry and insecure. He's shaking. So he can't hold his latte, okay? He's shaking. He's shaking. He's shaking with so much anger. And when it says all Jerusalem with him, there's two, two explanations. The first is that these are the leaders of Jerusalem that he's going to call, the religious leaders, that they're going to be upset too. I think that's a weaker inference. The stronger inference is that all Jerusalem is agitated because they're afraid now. Because Herod has a reputation that he's evil. You'll see next week that when he doesn't get his way, he orders infants to be murdered. Similar to our world today, murder of infants. But he wants all of these infants to be murdered, but he's known as a guy who he's so insecure that he has his own family members killed because he's afraid that they'll threaten him, his throne. Anything that tries to invade his little token territory, if he could only see that this was enslaving him, he would see that the king of the Jews is coming to free you. But instead, he, he's known as when anything agitates him, he's going to act irrationally. So I think that's the interpretation that we should take, is that all Jerusalem is like, he's agitated? Someone's going to die. You know, we're agitated. So this is the paranoid, insecure, little king. I'm just saying that. I don't know how big or tall he was. 
And this is how did he respond? The text says he was troubled. And then notice in verse 4, verses, verses 4 uh, to 6, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he had no idea. And they told him, because they knew, the Jewish leaders knew. But I want you to see something about the Jewish leaders. I did not make this into a point. But they respond with indifference. Notice they told them, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They knew the Bible, but they weren't overjoyed. The Gentiles rejoiced. The Gentiles went to look for the newborn king. The Jewish leaders, they knew the Bible. The Gentiles didn't know where to look. When they found out, they were like so grateful for the supernatural intervention of God that led them to Christ. These Jews, they know exactly where to look. They're not excited. They don't go look for the king, but look at what they say in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers, are no means by uh, least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Now, these first three lines I've mentioned are from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But then the last clause, who will shepherd my people Israel, Matthew adds that. And the reason why Matthew adds that is because the leaders are supposed to be the spiritual shepherds of Israel, but they're indifferent. They are not shepherding Israel. So right there you already see it set up that you have Matthew being set up. You have a token evil king who's not really Jewish. You have these Jewish leaders who are indifferent. They know the Bible. They're church folks that don't have true conversion. They don't believe. They just know religion. They know the answers. They're not exciting. They don't respond with joy. They don't go seek after Christ. They don't care. Now back to Herod. So they're not telling Herod anything else. So he finds out he's listening. And in verse 7, notice that he's like, okay, I got the answers that I need. He calls the wise men back. And he's deceptive. And he tells the wise men secretly. And it says, go search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's deceptive because Herod wants to kill Jesus. But he says, hey, wise men, okay, now that the Jewish leaders have told me where to look, I want you to go there now, wise men, to Bethlehem. But they're still going to follow the star. And when you find the baby, tell me so I can come and worship him. That's not true. He wants to kill the Messiah. And as I mentioned earlier in verse 12, we know that the wise men, they, they do not return to Herod. They turned the other way. They departed and went back to their country another way because God intervened in a dream. Isn't it interesting that the wise men who were known to interpret dreams now receive a dream sent from God. God sent a dream which instructed them not to return to Herod, and they listen. We see here a foreshadow of you and I as Gentiles coming to worship Christ. But I think the main point of today's passage, rather than a big idea, it poses a big question, a natural question. The question is, how will you and I respond to Christ this morning? The big question is, will you worship Christ as king, or will you seek to eliminate him from being king over your life? And earlier I mentioned different parts of your life that you might have given over to idols in your heart. Different things in your life 
that you haven't fully surrendered to Christ? Do you try to eliminate him from those areas? Or if you're not yet a believer, are you eliminating the concept of the need for Christ or the need for God? Or will you seek to worship him? That's the big question. With that, I, I have two Christmas applications for you. The first is God is completely in control of history and our personal journey to Christ. And the first application is that this Christmas season for Advent, I think it's a season where we need to not only celebrate the birth of Christ, but we need to remember personally how Jesus Christ led all of you personally to worship him as your Lord and Savior. You look at the example once again of the Jewish leaders who knew the Bible, but they did not worship, they did not believe. And you look at these wise men who, because of special revelation, they were drawn to seek after Christ to worship him. And they worshiped him for who he is, the newborn king of the Jews. And when you look at your life, I want you to think back to how God is completely in control of history, and, and that history includes your personal journey. Remember this from the book of Daniel. It was God who delivered his rebellious people into Babylonian captivity in the first place. Daniel chapter 1. It was God who elevated Daniel to the position of influence in the royal courts. Daniel chapter 5. It was God who allowed the prophecies concerning Christ to be taught to the Gentiles. It was God who centuries later sent these magi to search for the newborn Messiah. It was God who led them to Bethlehem to bow down before the newborn king. It was God who communicated to them in a dream not to return to Herod. And in the same way, it is God who caused Gentiles like you and me to bow before Christ in worship. Notice, if you read very carefully, the magi did not one day wake up and decide to go on an adventure to search for the Jewish Messiah. They would not have sought after Christ in their own free will or desire. It is because a star was revealed to them and they were sent to search for Christ, to fulfill scriptures like Isaiah 60 where the nations would come and bow before the newborn king and newborn Messiah. In the same way, it is God who works through history and then his story becoming real in our personal journey. It is God who causes you and me to worship Christ, the Christ of Christmas, as our personal Lord and Savior, not just as the story of a baby who was born, but as our personal Lord and Savior. That is the first Christmas application. Take time this Christmas, this Advent season, to reflect on your personal journey to Christ and how the Lord led you to worship the newborn King and worship Him with joy. Rejoice at the joy of your salvation like these wise men. And when I say wise men, that's not just the men in this room, right? But men and women of God, let us come before him and worship with joy. The second application, I want you to once again to deep dive into Herod's heart. Herod truly needed to see a biblical counselor, but he needed the gospel first. He had some deep-rooted issues. Herod saw Christ, just the announcement of Christ, as a threat and immediately sought to eliminate him. And there was a pattern in Herod's life that anything that threatened what he held dear to, his token kingship, he would seek to eliminate them because he feared losing what? Control. His sphere of control, his influence, <laughs> even though nobody really believed him. He had the power of force. And he had the strong arm of the Roman military that he could use at his disposal. But he was not a true 
king. He was not a shepherd of Israel. You see, Christ, as I mentioned, he's coming to reign in the future. But right now, he wants to reign in our hearts. But when he comes in, he's not like Herod. He is a good king. You understand that even as Christians, we are, we are tempted to eliminate Christ from reigning over certain areas of our lives, like I mentioned before. But when Christ comes in, he wants to take back the things, the places, the locations in our heart that we've given over to spiritual slavery. There are things in our hearts that we are spiritually enslaved to. It could be worshiping your career, your children, your money, your time, whatever it might be. Material things, things in our hearts that enslave us. When Christ comes in, some of us are like, oh, he's coming to invade. He's coming to take space. He's coming to threaten me. No, no, no. In his first coming, he came to die on the cross for your sins and to rise again on the third day. He comes into your hearts. Yes, he wants to reign, but he wants to rescue you from spiritual slavery. Oh, if only Herod could see this, that his true value would come from Christ, who would come. And Christ would redeem Herod if his heart was softened and would show him that Christ is the true king of the Jews, but he's a, a king who comes in to make us whole. He sees our brokenness, he sees our insecurities, and he wants to make us secure in him. If you truly knew Christ, you would agree. And for those of you who know Christ Deeply, and for those of you, who, especially if you've gone through a bout with disease or cancer or a loss of a loved one or some serious trial in your life, then you know that the more you surrender to him, not by force, but with joyful submission, the more you surrender to him, the more you will experience the joy of your salvation. The more you surrender to him in prayer, the more you'll actually recognize, oh, that was an answer to prayer. That was an answer to prayer. That was an answer to prayer. And that Jesus Christ, God the Father, answers prayers for us that we don't even pray. They're like, oh, I should have prayed for that, but he answered it for me. God is a good God. The newborn king calls for us to respond. How will you respond this morning? If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, then the burden is put before you today that you have to respond to the newborn king. Every human being will one day have to make a response to the newborn king that was born on Christmas Day. Will you respond with worship or will you seek to eliminate him? Because now if you've never heard the gospel, you've heard it, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sinless Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day and if you confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace, if you repent and turn to him, he will forgive you and he will change your life. Now you've heard the gospel. There's no more excuse. Will you seek to eliminate him? Or will you instead respond, invite him and respond to the call of Christ and allow him to make you whole? If you want to receive Christ, you can come to the Next Steps table. Pastor Gabe will be there to talk to you as well as other brothers and sisters, and they can lead you to a confirmation of a true response to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and as we are deep into the Christmas season now, Lord, we pray, Lord, that aside from all the festivities and all the commercialism, that we would revisit, first and foremost, 
our personal journey which you led us to towards Christ, our personal journey towards salvation. Remind us once again of how you led us all as individuals to receive Christ as not just a story about a baby being born on Christmas Day, but as our Messiah, our Lord and our Savior. Will we experience the joy of our salvation in worship and praise? And Father, I pray, Lord, for areas in our lives that we need to surrender to you, that we would allow you to examine our hearts and that you would reign because you are a good king that came to shepherd us and to rescue us from spiritual slavery. I pray, Lord, that you would do the spiritual work of making room in our hearts for you to reign as king because you are not just the king of the Jews, but you are the king of the world. You are the king of the universe. You are, the, you are our king. Be our king. And lastly, Lord, if there's anybody in here who needs to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would do your work and that you would bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.